Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Welcome everyone to IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and I'm delighted to have my friend Frank Foray from Mayo Clinic Jacksonville back as a return guest to IBD Drive Time. Frank, welcome back to IBD Drive Time. Thank you so much for having me, Ray. So Frank, I wanted to have you back on because you're one of the world's experts in health maintenance and IBD and in particular vaccines. And there's been some new recommendations regarding COVID vaccination and a new vaccine for RSV. So I wanna jump right in on the COVID vaccine. So there is a new recommendation from the CDC recently. Um, what do the listeners need to know about the new COVID vaccine? Well, Ray, I think the last thing we wanna talk about is COVID, but unfortunately COVID is not going away. We are seeing some increasing cases uh, over the last several weeks. And I think many of the listeners know that the COVID virus that first came out in 2020 is not the same virus that's circulating now. And so the CDC met in mid-September and recommended that everyone six months and older receive an updated COVID-19 vaccine that targets this Omicron strain that's the most common variant we're seeing. I just want to reinforce that we know that vaccination remains the best way to prevent COVID-19-related hospitalization and death. And there's also information suggesting that if you get the vaccine and get COVID, you're less likely to get long COVID. Now, I know there's a lot of concern in some parts of the country about the mRNA vaccines, the classic Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And we're just awaiting the FDA to give emergency use authorization to a different vaccine called the Novavax vaccine. That's been around already. And it's a protein subunit vaccine that targets the spike protein of COVID-19. It's the same technology that we use for hepatitis B vaccination. So for those individuals that are concerned about mRNA vaccines, although the overwhelming data is that they're quite safe and effective, that would be something to be on the lookout for. And again, I wanna remind the listeners about a study in which I participated and you were the senior author, Ray, was published in the Red Journal demonstrating that the timing of vaccination does not need to be adjusted based on infusions or injections. So if your patient is getting infliximab, betalizumab, whatever they're getting, and they want to get their vaccine, they should get it. It's better to get it under your belt and defer to try to time it relative to infusions or injections. I didn't know about the long COVID with vaccine, or perhaps I forgot that. So that's really another important message, I think, for patients who have some vaccine hesitancy. And Frank, when I've looked at the data looking at, we know that these vaccines can cause <clears throat> significant local reactions and even systemic reactions, although they typically are very mild. And just to clarify, what I've seen is with subsequent doses, there's no evidence that adverse effects directly related to the vaccine increase with subsequent doses. Is that correct? That's correct. And in general, it's hard to predict why one person might feel worse after the first injection or the second. For example, for the Shingrix vaccine, it's impossible to predict. Someone may feel lousy after the first and do better after the second or vice versa. So 
the bottom line is there's no reason to believe that the adverse risk profile will be any different for the new COVID vaccine that's going to be, that is now actually available. If you look, listen to the New York Times or, or, or listen to the radio, you know there have been some issues with rollout of the vaccine, but I think that'll all be sorted out in the very near future. And um, as you said in the beginning of this podcast, there are increasing cases as clinicians or patients are letting us know that they have a recent COVID infection. And it's always a challenge when someone's had a recent infection uh, regarding the timing of the of the vaccine dose. So I've heard people say 90 days because your natural immunity spikes and you don't want to waste the vaccine. So you want to get a good boost of antibodies. What do you tell your patients, Frank? I don't think there's any firm guidelines on this. I think you're right, uh, Ray. The first thing to know is that it's still recommended that individuals who had a COVID infection receive the vaccine. And this kind of hybrid immunity seems to lead to longer protection. So the CDC recommendations are nebulous, stating that you can consider delaying your vaccine by three months but you can actually receive it as early as one month after infection. So for someone with inflammatory bowel disease who just recovered from COVID, is not on immunomodulators, not immunosuppressed, I'm gonna probably wait three months. But if I have a highly suppressed immunocompromised patient, I'll probably gonna give it between one and two months. But that's my personal opinion. We don't have any firm recommendations other than the ones on the CDC website stating that you can consider delaying the vaccination for three months. Yeah, that that, sort of, that nuance is really important, I think, because I think it's fairly clear now that an, patients who are on an anti-TNF, they still develop antibody responses, but they're not as vigorous and they perhaps don't last as long. So that might, that's, might be a good example of someone you don't wait the full 90 days. I, I completely agree. I would just want to echo one thing, though. The antibody responses may not last as long, but actually work that we've done with Freddie Caldera shows that T-cell responses may actually be higher in anti-TNF-treated patients. So it's not all antibodies. There's also the T-cell response that may play a role. But the bottom line is if you have a highly immunocompromised patient, I'm going to probably give their vaccine between one and two months. If someone is, doesn't fit into that high-risk group, I'll probably wait three months. That's probably, I think that's perhaps then why we don't see higher rates of COVID infection in anti-TNF-treated patients compared to other therapies. So it may be that T-cell immunity is protecting them when the other antibodies, when the antibodies fall off. Are you, I don't know if this is right what I'm doing, but when my patients message me and they tell me they have recently acquired an infection, I'm pretty liberal in my prescribing of Paxlovid. Um, the logic being that we don't really have uh, limited um, amounts of the Paxlovid. And even if I'm shortening the illness by a day or two, to me, that seems like something reasonable. Am I over-prescribing Paxlovid, Frank, or is that a reasonable strategy? How do you do it? So patients with risk factors should be treated with either with Paxlovid or remdesivir, um, again, as you pointed out earlier, I kind of live and breathe uh, vaccination. And so earlier this year, we published a paper in, um, in CGH, and we looked at rates of hospitalization uh, in, and death, actually, in patients with IBD who received Paxlovid versus a group that did not. 
And what we basically show that the risk of hospitalization in IBD tra patients treated with Paxlovid was 1.8%, but it was 5% in the control group who did not receive Paxlovid. And we did the propensity score matching and Paxlovid reduced the risk of hospitalization by 65%. Um, so in, um, in a, another study that was done with the VA, Again, I mentioned earlier that vaccination lowers the risk of long COVID. In a VA study, it showed that Paxlovid also lowered the risk of long COVID. So I think there are a lot of reasons to do that. Now, you may be put off by the drug-drug interactions, but you know, typical thing would be a 70-year-old on a statin. Well, you can just hold the statin and begin the Paxlovid, but if there are absolute contraindications, you'd have to use the remdesivir, which is the IV infusion given once a day for three days. So I use lots of Paxlovid in my patients with IBD. Well, that's, yeah, I think a 3% absolute reduction in hospitalization um, is, is pretty important. So I think we're doing the right thing. So this may be um, controversial, but I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and thinking about testing for COVID. Um, do you think we need to have a more common sense approach with this? And for example, if you're sick, stay home regardless of what the illness is until you feel better. And then if it's a respiratory illness, regardless, regardless of the cause, wear a mask for five days at work and then be done. Do you think that's what we need to do? Or, or should does this test strategy still make sense? Uh, nothing like an easy one from your A. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that if you're exposed to someone who um, has COVID, and this is not walking in the hallway, this is in a classroom or wherever, and you've been exposed for 15 plus minutes, uh, I think you should be tested just so that you kind of know. And the reason is not for yourself potentially, but for us as, as, as physicians, we're in front of immunocompromised patients all the time. You know, the, in the old days, it said that you had to quarantine yourself if you were exposed. Now, you should just isolate yourself if you test positive. And then when you recover, again, you can follow the rules, which is typically five days. And we'll talk about testing uh, in the when we talk about RSV. But right now, if you develop an upper respiratory tract infection and you get a nasal swab, it'll be, it'll test you for flu, inf uh, so influenza, RSV, and COVID. So you might approach being sick with the flu with a much shorter period before you go back to work as opposed to COVID. So I would basically say if you're exposed, test yourself. If you're positive, isolate yourself following the rules from the CDC. And for those that are exposed, <clears throat> and let's say they, they, they're exposed today and they test, but they have something they want to do. They want to go to the indoor Billy Joel concert. I'm just going to use an example. Um, what are you telling them? I mean, should they, you know, if you tested negative, we know it's not 100%. Should you still go about your life or should you warn the people you're going to be around that you've had an exposure? What's a common sense approach to that? Uh, well, I, I got to tell you, that's a tough one. I mean, this how you feel and kind of the more societal issue of exposing people like I, I mean if I if I would be pretty upset if the person sitting next to me on the plane 
knew that they were positive for COVID and got on the plane. So I think, and going to a Billy Joel concert would be pretty, a lot of fun. And I think there'd be a lot of yelling and screaming and it's unlikely that you keep your mask on. So I think it's a personal decision. There's your own personal health and there's the health of people all around you. But an asymptomatic COVID positive patient probably should not be going to the Billy Joel concert. Oh, I do. I'm sorry. I want to clarify. You've been exposed, but you you did a test and you're negative, but okay. you had an exposure, a close contact. Okay, I gotcha. Well, you are right that the testing can be um, the sensitivity can be low. I think if you did two tests 24 hours apart, I'd be comfortable uh, without an issue. Um, if there's any concern and you're just going out to dinner or going out to something, I'd wear a mask as much as you could. But again, it's a tough one. Yeah, and I think I think full disclosure is really important. So if we're going to have dinner with another couple and I had an exposure yesterday, it's just tell them that, hey, I had an exposure yesterday. Do you still want to go to dinner or, you know, do you want to just reschedule for next week? I think that's always the right thing to do. So I just want to remind the listeners that um, the IBD Drive Time is sponsored by AIBD and the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And speaking of AIBD, uh, my most fun course of the year, the national um, course in Orlando will be held 1214 to 1216. Plenty of time to register and make arrangements to attend that wonderful course. So Frank, a couple more questions. Let's shift to the new RSV vaccine. What do the listeners need to know about this vaccine? It's an RNA virus. It's a common infection that leads to pretty significant morbidity and mortality. And you know about the individuals that are at highest risk, their infants, older adults, and immunocompromised patients. Um, in anticipation of this um, talk with you, I did kind of go to um, the CDC website to get some data on this. And apparently about 1.4 million outpatient visits, 120,000 emergency room visits, 160,000 hospitalizations, and perhaps 20,000 deaths related to RSV in the United States. Not surprisingly, hospitalizations predominantly occur in patients with comorbidities such as COPD, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And there's data to suggest that the risk of RSV in adults over the age of 65 with risk factors could be as high as 10% with mortality rates of 5%. So they're similar to influenza. Um, uh, patients who are immunocompromised transplant patients, there can be extraordinarily high risk of requiring hospitalization. As I mentioned before, if you um, have cold symptoms and it's October, the commercial assay, the swab, you'll be tested for COVID, influenza, and RSV. The RSV season is beginning now. If you look at what happened last year, it peaked in October into November. And you can look on the CDC website, just like you can look for COVID cases. And we're starting to see an increase in cases in the Southeast United States. It, it, it's hard to tell the difference between RSV and COVID and uh, influenza. So I think if you were exposed, I would basically, uh, so if you have symptoms and you want to know, I think having this testing would be the way to sort out which of the three you have. And, and we are concerned about dual infections. You can see dual infections of RSV and COVID, RSV and influenza, influenza and COVID. 
And and just to to remind me and remind the listeners, this is for all adults that are sixty years of age or older, right? Or eligible for this. And then is that is that true, or do they have to have comorbid conditions as well? So what's recommended is that it would be a shared decision making um, just uh, to decide if you want to get the vaccine. So a 65 year old who's, you know, running the marathon, playing tennis every day is different than the person who's got a creatinine of two and was a former smoker. So we'll talk about what I do for my IBD patients. But I think that I'm recommending the vaccine for those individuals who have risk factors above the age of 60. So not everyone I'm going to recommend the vaccine to. And so that's a nice segue to the IBD patients. I think you're publishing something related to RSV and that our patients have worse outcomes with RSV infection. So what are you doing with your your older IBD patients, but also your younger IBD patients that are on maybe a more systemic immune suppressant like an anti-TNF or a JAK inhibitor? So we already know that our patients um, are at increased risk of for influenza, pneumococcal pneumonia, and zoster, uh, and that can be independent of their disease um, immunomodulating therapy. In other words, having IBD, having Crohn's disease increases your risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. And so our uh, present IBD fellow, Akash Desai, uh, and with my collaborators, Freddie Caldera and others from University of Wisconsin, what we did was we looked at the Trinetics data set. Uh, it's a data set that has over 70 million Americans in it. And we looked at the rates of RSV infection in patients with IBD. So we had 200,000 patients with IBD, 4 million controls. And we demonstrated that the risk of RSV was increased in patients with IBD. The odds ratio was 2.24. If they were on immunomodulators, it was 3.06. Anti-TNFs was 1.66. And then if you just looked at hospitalizations, it was increased um, by 1.36. So we now have evidence that there is an increased risk in patients with IBD. That has been submitted for publication, and we're doing a revision right now. So we mentioned earlier that again, the FDA has approved and the, sorry, the FDA approved and the ACIP recommended RSV vaccination for those above the age of 60 who have risk factors for adverse outcomes. We went over the risk factors, diabetes, heart disease, uh, COPD, and we now have two vaccines. One comes from Pfizer, one comes from GlaxoSmithKline. These are non-live vaccines. So again, all our patients, whether immunocompromised or not, would be eligible. A single dose appears to cover us for two years. So it'll be a single dose for two seasons. Um, and in the clinical trials, you reduce the risk of getting RSV by about 75%. And again, similar to COVID, you reduce the risk of hospitalization and severe a disease by about 90%. Um, individuals, uh, you should, the listeners should know that you can give RSV and influenza together. You can give influenza and COVID together boosters uh, or vaccines, but there's no data yet for COVID and RSV. And so it is not recommended to um, administer those together. So to summarize, I'm 
not recommending this to every single patient above the age of 60. I'm certainly recommending it for my immunocompromised patients and those individuals who have the risk factors that I just mentioned. So 60 years and older with comorbid conditions, regardless of IBD, and then IBD, if they're on an immunosuppressant or anti-TNF, you're recommending it if they're 60 and over. Yeah, or a JAK, or basically, obviously, we all know that some drugs are more, place our patients at significantly higher risk than others for infection. So that's the group I would target. I mean, I think a 60-year-old healthy person on vedolizumab, ustekinumab, or rizinkizumab, you might approach differently, assuming they didn't have heart disease or the other risk factors. Right. So I don't think this is not like influenza, where every single person should get influenza. It's a new vaccine. Safety looks good. Uh, but I, I think, not surprisingly, our patients are at increased risk, and we should be offering this vaccine. Wonderful. And now for a fun question. So Frank, tell listeners about your most recent fishing experience. Ah, uh, there are so many to talk about, Ray. Uh, I've been trying to perfect my saltwater fly fishing technique, and I spent a fair amount of time on holiday up in uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And um, as you know, uh, uh, you were unable to visit us during COVID when we gave, uh, when you presented at our gut club. But uh, I'm only about a mile away from the ocean, so I get to the go to the ocean whenever I want. And finally, I found a couple of ponds uh, in my development, and now I'm trying to perfect my freshwater uh, fly fishing skills. And I'm I'm going fishing this weekend. So for the listeners, Frank took me uh, fishing for steelhead in Pennsylvania, and it was my first time uh, fly fishing. And I actually got one of these trophy fish. I hooked one. And of course, I did it incorrectly and lost the fish. And the look on Frank's face of disappointment was was awful. But he tried for the rest of the day to get me to hook another one, and it didn't work. Frank, this has been wonderful. Thanks for doing this. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners learned a lot, too. Thanks again. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks again, Ray.